0: Hey everyone. I don't know if that was enough silence. I don't know how it works here. I was like, I gotta talk at some point. So it's uh, great to see you. Uh, As Charles said, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors uh, at Redemption Gateway. And I bring my greetings uh, from Gateway. And uh, from the other Redemption Congregations, uh, we love you guys. It's so fun to be here. I was here a couple months ago. had kind of a morning where I spent uh, the 9 o'clock service here at Peoria and then went to Alhambra. It's cool to see the new things happening on campus and to see some familiar faces and see see some new faces as well since the last time I was here. So uh, thanks for having us. As uh, Charles said, uh, part of my family is here, but I'll introduce you to my whole family. Uh, Here's a picture that we took at Christmas Uh, My wife, Molly, and I just celebrated 20 years of marriage, and uh, yeah, that's pretty fun. And uh, we've got Abby, who's in high school, Caitlin, who's in middle school, Mary, who's in elementary school, and Hank, who's in preschool. So... Pray for us. is basically the moral of that story, um, but we just have a great deal of affection for Peoria and especially for the Demeter family. Uh, for John and Tree, we uh, love them a lot. And actually, this uh, summer we got to spend a, a weekend with them in San Diego while the older kids were at summer camp. And uh, man, uh, Hank and, and uh, Mary and John especially just really really hit it off. In fact, when I got here today, um, John had given me a mug and there was a note for me saying thanks for coming. And then there was a note for Hank saying, hey, if I'd have been here, I'd have kicked your butt. And a note for Mary, because Mary always dominated John in card games. And so uh, there's a lot of affection. So actually, I want to show you a little bit of a, of a video uh, that I took this summer while we were together, just to give you kind of a sense of our, our affection for John and his affection for our family. So uh, take a quick look at this. <laughs> So there's Hank uh, making his pew, pew, pew sounds, you know, like uh, Spider-Man or something. The thing I also want you to know about that, you heard the Superman music playing in the background. that John had put that on in the room <laughs> to create the perfect environment for the epic battle that was going to take place. So uh, anyway, we, uh, we love you guys, and it really is fun to be here and to be together. Um, today, we're getting back into the Gospel of John. We've been plugging away as redemption at the Gospel of John for a couple of years now, and we're about to hit the home stretch. And uh, we're going to get into this part in chapter 17 where Jesus is praying for, for glory, for, for God's glory and his glory to be made manifest. And when you experience glory, it usually moves you. You don't usually experience glory and just sit still. Sometimes it moves you in the smallest of ways. You experience something glorious and it gives you goosebumps. Goosebumps. Other times, it's much bigger, right? Like I think about these moments when you watch the NBA when someone crosses someone over or goes in for a big dunk and the whole bench goes, Whoa! right? Everyone gets off the bench as soon as the big slam happens because when you see glory, it moves you. Uh, you see this sometimes when you watch concerts, right? If you see a Taylor Swift concert or a One Direction concert or something, and there's all these girls fainting or maybe boys fainting, I don't know, but there's fainting that happens because there's glory in the presence of uh, Justin Timberlake or whoever it might be. Um, I experienced this when I was seven years old. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And uh, for me, the, the ultimate sort of hero in my life growing up was John Elway. He was the quarterback of the Denver Broncos. I think you could argue the best quarterback ever Maybe second best after Tom Brady, I don't know. But, uh, but he was great, and he was like the, the pinnacle in my world. And when I was seven years old, I was at a restaurant with my family. We were out to dinner, and we looked over, and across the restaurant was John Elway. He was there eating in the same restaurant as us. And I was seven and adorable. And so my parents were like, hey, Luke, you should go over there and say hi and ask him for an autograph. And when you're in the presence of glory, <laughs> you move. And I moved underneath the table and started hiding. I was, there was no way I was going to go over there and talk to John Elway. Because when you see glory, it moves you. And I've, actually the way that it moved me is usually the way that it tends to move people in the Bible. When God shows up, when angels show up, when glory shows up, they tend to eat carpet. Right? You get down, you get low. Right? When Jesus d- displays an incredible work uh, of, of gathering up all these fish after Peter and his friends had spent the night fishing and caught nothing, and they gather all these fish so much so that it begins to sink the boats, what does Peter do? He says, I'm an unholy man, and I'm in the presence of a holy man, and he gets down on his face. Because when you experience glory, it moves you. This makes me think of Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is brought into the throne room of heaven and he sees God high and lifted up and exalted. And there's these uh, cherubim and seraphim flying around. And it says, uh, they're saying all the time, day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says that the train of his robe filled the temple and the foundations of the temple shook. And the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And what is Isaiah's response? His response is, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell with a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, what's amazing is Isaiah was a professional talker. And he says, what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. Even the very best part of me is terrible in the presence of glory. Now, why does the earthquake in Isaiah? Because when the glory of God shows up, the glory, glory, one of the ways to translate glory in the Old Testament is to talk about its weightiness. C.S. Lewis talked, wrote had a book called The Weight of Glory, that the weightiness of God shows up. And so oftentimes when the glory of God shows up, there's an earthquake. You see this on the cross, Jesus dies, and the earth quakes, why? Because it's a moment of glory. Glory is weightiness, glory is significance, glory is substance, glory is splendor, glory is honor. And today we're going to look at Jesus praying related to glory. This is the final hours before the cross. And you could actually say that John 17, if you have your Bible, make sure you're with me in John 17. John 17 really is, uh, you could call it the other Lord's Prayer. We're familiar, perhaps, with the Lord's Prayer, where the disciples asked Jesus, Hey, teach us how to pray. And he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he goes on. And that's called the Lord's Prayer. But what you have in John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. So Jesus is hours away from being betrayed, from being arrested, from being falsely accused, from being whipped and flogged and scorned and hung on a cross and crucified. He's hours away from that. And here we have the backstage pass. The behind-the-scenes look. What was Jesus praying for in these moments? And so this week, and the next uh, three weeks, really, we're going to look at this, this prayer of Jesus. We're going to see this week how Jesus prays for glory. Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus prays for his disciples, those who would follow him. And the last week, or the third week, we'll look at how Jesus prayed for his church. But today, how Jesus... Praise for glory. And this uh, whole prayer in John 17, commentator D.A. Carson, he sums it up this way. He says, In some respects, this prayer is a summary of the entire fourth gospel to this point. Its principal themes include Jesus' obedience to the Father, his glorification of his Father through his death and exaltation, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, the choosing of the disciples out of the world, their mission to the world, their unity modeled on the unity of the Father and Son, and their final destiny in the presence of the Father and the Son. That's all the stuff that John has been about up to this point. And now we have his prayer. So here's the big idea today. Here's the main kind of takeaway, is that Jesus is glorious... And he invites us to know him. Us people of unclean lips, us people of unclean lives, us people of unclean motivations. Jesus is glorious, and he invites us to know him. So let's pray, let's ask for God's help as we unpack his word today. Father, we do come to you and pray that you would reveal yourself in glory. God, that our hearts would move, that our lives would change, that things would be different because... uh, Not just we've heard some words, but that we've had an encounter with the living God. And we can't manufacture that. We can't gin that up. You have to be gracious. So we pray that you would be. Pour your spirit out. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to do what you say. Help us to see the glory of Christ and to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. The reason I'm talking so much about glory is this is a word that's used five times in these first five verses. If you have your Bible, look at it with me. In verse 1, Jesus prays, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. In verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All of this talk of glorify, glorify, glorify your Son, so the Son would glorify you. So you get the idea that there's kind of this cycle of glory, that the Father glorifies Jesus, so Jesus glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies Jesus, so that Jesus glorifies the Father. And this is just kind of happening throughout all of eternity that God is this triune person this triune uh, collection of persons who are forever enjoying one another, honoring one another, glorifying one another. Jesus says, verse 4, I glorified you on earth. Now glorify me again with the glory I used to have with you. And the cycle continues. But what I want to show you in this passage is, is five ways that Jesus is revealed to be glorious. It's one thing just to say glorify me. It's another thing to say Jesus is glorious. But let's, let's get into it. Why is Jesus glorious? What makes him glorious? Five things we see about Jesus' glory. The first is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 1. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. that the Son may glorify you. You, in our culture, we... Uh, we meet someone new for the first time. Perhaps you and I will have this conversation today after the service as we connect. And I might ask you, I might say, hey, what do you do? That's what we say when we meet someone. Hey, what do you do? Because a lot of the way we kind of think about our identity and kind of who we are, and just at least at a basic level, maybe hopefully not at a deep, deep, deep level, but at least the basic get to know you level is, is what do you do? In this time, in ancient cultures, in Jesus' day, the question would have been, who's your father? Who's your father? And, and we view that, especially those of us from Western cultures, if you're from more of an Eastern culture, this might even be still a more relevant question, kind of your family connections, but, but in Western culture, it's almost like a threat. Who's your, who's, who's your daddy, right? Like, uh. <laughs> but, but this is, and for those of us who follow Jesus, we hear Jesus talk about himself as the son, we hear Jesus teach us to pray, Father, and we forget how revolutionary Nobody called God Father in Jesus' day. This was scandalous. This is a revolutionary claim. Father, Father, calling himself the Son of God, and you go, "Well, what's the big deal? Well, let's ask the Jews who heard Jesus. Look at what we saw earlier in John chapter five, verse 18. It says, "This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews heard Jesus call God Father," and said, "I get what he's saying." By saying that he's the son of God, he's claiming equality with God and equal status with God. Jesus is glorious because he is the son of God. Second reason Jesus is glorious in this text is that Jesus is the suffering servant. We see this in verse 1 and in verse 4. In verse 1, look at what Jesus prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, In John, in John's gospel especially, this hour is always described as this moment of suffering. And Jesus over and over throughout the gospel of John has been saying, my hour hasn't come, my time hasn't come, it's not time for me to suffer yet. It's not time for me to go to the cross yet. In chapter 2, verse 4, at the wedding at Cana, he says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, he says, it says his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, it says his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 12, after these Greeks, these non-Jews begin to inquire about Jesus, it said this, the hour has come. And that's what sets in motion this whole last chunk of this week of Jesus' life that John is focused on in chapters 13-13. Through the end of the book is that finally the hour has come and when that happens in chapter 12 jesus says what should i say save me from this hour when you look at the agony of the cross of course that's what jesus would want that's what anyone would want in matthew mark and luke we see jesus in the garden and he prays father if this if this cup could pass from me please let that happen not my will but yours be done makes me think of when I was in college, I went from uh, growing up in Denver to college at the University of Illinois where I played baseball. And uh, actually, one of the guys that discipled me is one of the guys that John Demeter used to work very closely with in Athletes in Action, so kind of a cool small world dynamic there. Uh, But in the fall and in the winter, uh, when we weren't kind of in our season, we would do workouts kind of all week long, and then we'd always have a Friday morning weightlifting workout, and then we were off the rest of Friday. We were off all day Saturday. We were off most of the day Sunday, and then Sunday night... We would do a terrible, like, kill you workout. I made the mistake, actually, I think it was like the second week of these workouts, because the first one was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. And the second week that we did it, me and a bunch of friends uh, decided there was this, like, a sports bar that had, like, $1 brats. <laughs> so you could watch the football games and have $1 brats. I think I'd put down, like, four of them. And then I, brought them back up at the end of my Sunday <laughs> night workout. I mean, it was agony. Like, like you would, you would feel all this relief Friday morning and then it was good. And as soon as you woke up on Sunday, it was like, oh, <laughs> my hour's coming. <laughs> <laughs> See, they're going because it wasn't about, condi- it wasn't about like skill or agility. It was just about, can you survive this workout? That's what Jesus is saying saying the hour has come. Here in chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. Jesus is going to suffer. And this is not a surprise. This was actually predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Jesus, here's what it says about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus saw that his hour was coming, and he's glorious because he leaned into it, and he absorbed it, and he took it for us. And it's actually when Jesus dies on the cross that the centurion, that Roman soldier that had been watching Jesus and felt the earthquake... Sees Jesus not in his resurrected state, but in his crucified state with the crown of thorns around his head, and he gives up his last breath and he says it is finished. And it's that moment when the centurion says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus is glorious because he's the suffering servant. Here's what D.A. Carson says again the hideous profanity of Golgotha means nothing less than the Son's glorification this horrible, ugly, disgusting moment when humanity turns on the creator God is in fact his glory. Jesus is glorious because he's the son of God. He's the suffering servant. Third, he's the king of kings. Look at what it says in verse two. He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Why? Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Wow. (laughs) That's quite a statement authority over all flesh. I introduced you a moment ago to my son, Hank, and uh, maybe you'll see him uh, running around later. And uh, if you ask Hank, I mean, he might genuinely be on like a superhero track. <laughs> and uh, he's powerful and he's strong and I can take you and I'll be right. If, he, if Demeter was here, he'd just talk so much trash. He, he acts powerful, but all Hank really can do is go pew, pew. Right? like It's one thing to say that you have authority over all flesh, but Jesus doesn't just, just say he's authoritative, but throughout this Gospel of John, we've seen he is authoritative. And so John has gone out of his way. He says over and over, there's all these things Jesus did, but John highlights seven signs that specifically point to the glory of Jesus. The first one was when Jesus turned water into wine. The second one, he healed an official's son who was deathly ill. The third one, he heals a man who had had been lame and had sat by this pool for three decades, hopelessly trying to hope that the water would stir up somehow, and by some superstitious thing, he'd be healed. And Jesus says, rise, take your mat, and walk. The fourth one was the feeding of the multitude where Jesus takes the small lunch that was packed by a little boy and feeds thousands of people with it. Fifth, he heals the man who had been born blind. Sixth, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Do you see these are getting more intense, more amazing. And it's interesting though, commentators debate. They say, okay, all throughout John, there's all this seven, seven, seven but what's the seventh sign? Because the six are all sort of highlighted as this is a sign, this is a sign, this is a sign. What's the seventh one? I think you could argue, based on how much time John spends telling the story, that the seventh sign is the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So when Jesus says he has authority over all flesh, he's even saying he has authority over his own life and death. Now, just generally, here's, what I, here's just some advice. If I can just give you some kind of life advice. This is, here's some good advice, okay? Kind of a, this is a just operating principle, at least in our family, and maybe it'll help you, okay? If someone, here's the advice, if someone can predict his death and resurrection and then pull it off, you should just do what he says. Okay, that's the wisdom. That's the just, you know, rules to live by, you know, deep thoughts with Luke Simmons. If someone can predict their death and resurrection and then do it, just do everything they say. Because what this means is that Jesus is the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords, that he has conquered Satan, sin, and death. He is authoritative over all flesh. Jesus is glorious because he's the son of God. He's the suffering servant. He's the king of kings. And fourth, Jesus is the life giver. This authority over all flesh is not designed mostly to crush us. But look at what it says in verse 2. Since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. This is what Jesus is doing. And in fact, from the very beginning of the gospel of John, there's been all this talk about life. In John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. But then 17 times in the Gospel of John, John writes about eternal life. Eternal life is perpetual, without end. It's everlasting. Jesus had said in chapter 10 when he described himself as a good shepherd, he said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is the life giver. And not just like life in the moment, but life forever. That's who Jesus is and what he's doing. It's interesting how there's all all this desire in us for eternal life, isn't there? One of our family's uh, favorite movies over the last few years has been Coco. I don't know if you've seen Coco, but it's just beautiful. The color's amazing. But it's all kind of based on this idea that, that your eternal life depends on you being remembered by your family. And they do such a good job with the movie that I want it to be true. <laughs> but, but that's a lot of pressure. And how many of you remember your great-great-grandfather? Which means you ain't going to have a eternal life. In more of a, you know, that, that's more kind of a spiritual family kind of sense. But, but there's this still desire for eternal life in these places where it would say, hey, we're not really trying to believe in God at all, right? You think about all that's going on in Silicon Valley, all that's going on with the metaverse, all that's going on related to the future. And you know the big thing that everybody, in terms of these futurists, what they're working on is this possibility that, that through AI and through all these other things, eventually what we'll be able to do is to upload our consciousness to the, to the web or whatever it will be called at that point, the metaverse. And that actually our bodies will go away, because who cares about our bodies? It's kind of an ancient Greek kind of thought almost, this dualistic thing, and we buy into it. But that if we can upload our, our consciousness, that our consciousness could download into new bodies every however often, and we could live forever. That sounds awful, living forever on the internet. I don't know. Like, is that, is that what hell is? I don't know. But. But but in all these different visions of eternal life, what you see is there's this longing, right? Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into the hearts of people. So it's not surprising there's this desire. But in all of these, you have to work for it. You have to have some sort of effort. But not in Jesus. Jesus says he gives it. Do you see that in verse 2? You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. Freely, generously, repeatedly. And over and over in John's gospel, he's talked about how Jesus has come to give eternal life. Look at some of these verses. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 4:14, 4, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And John 6, 40 says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's just a sampling of so many places where Jesus has been talking in the Gospel of John about how he came to give eternal life. Why? Because he's the glorious life giver. And here's the fifth glorious aspect of Jesus we see in this passage is that Jesus is the eternal God. Maybe it's obvious by this point. <laughs> Maybe we've picked up on it by this point. But Jesus makes it even clearer in verse 5. Look what he says. He says, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wait a minute. Did I read that right? Read that again. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, what Jesus is saying is before all of this existed, I was, I was glorious with you, Father. And so Jesus, in a sense, had to not take off his deity, but take off his glory as he lived among us. Right? This is why he can be, you know, everyone's like, eh, I don't know. Isn't that just, isn't that just Joseph's kid, the carpenter? Is he really that special? I mean, I don't remember him being voted most likely to be Messiah <laughs> in high school. Uh, he seems kind of nuts. Right? Why, why is that possible? Because Jesus limited his glory. He didn't le- limit his divinity, his deity, but he limited his glory. And now he's about to be exalted on the cross and he's saying, Father, restore to me my glory. Not, by the way, not taking off his humanity. You know, Jesus is forever, from, now, from the time of his incarnation, he's a human being. When you meet him, you'll be able to shake his nail-scarred hand. He didn't lose his body but he took his glory again. This is a staggering claim of Jesus. And again Jesus isn't preaching here he's just relating to his father here's who he is. And if you want to know who Jesus is he's the glorious one because he's the eternal God. And this brings to mind C.S. Lewis is just famous argument here about Jesus, because some of us will just often go, well, I don't know. Jesus was just a pretty good guy. He was a miracle worker. C.S. Lewis says, no, that's not one of the choices. Here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Think, think about that. If Jesus is saying, the glory I had with you before the world began, he's either a megalomaniac nutzo, or he's a liar. Neither of those are glorious. Here's what he says. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus is the glorious one, the son of God, the suffering servant, the life giver, the eternal God. And here's the good news today. And he invites us to know him. (laughs) Because if Jesus is just the glorious one, that's mostly a threat. That's mostly Isaiah going, woe to me, I'm undone, I can't come near this, my very best part is not good enough, I'm out. But Jesus is the eternally glorious God who reigns and rules over all things. And you don't have to hide under the table when you see him. He actually calls you over to his table. And he invites you to eat of his bread and to drink of his wine. And all of it's on him. Jesus is glorious, but you can get to know him. And that's the the key verse here in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Now, if you're paying attention, and I listed all those verses from John that talked about eternal life, they all said, believe in me, eternal life, believe eternal life, believe eternal life. And now he's saying, this is eternal life, that they know you, And what this tells us is that in Jesus' mind, believing in him, it's more than just mentally agreeing that he's glorious, but it's actually knowing him. It's having a relationship. It's having intimacy. It's having closeness. It's having friendship. We all just uh, finished watching Christmas movies, didn't we? Or maybe some of you are still going. I don't know, but... uh, you know, I love the Hallmark movies. I mean, I'm a total sucker for the Hallmark movies. It's, uh, it's really one movie that they just, you know, figure out 438 ways to do it. But, but they're all awesome, right? And it's just so heartwarming and it's great. But, but, but when you think about, like, the feature films related to Christmas, almost all of them are trying to get you to do one thing, believe in Santa. But there's one film that's even better elf. And why is elf better? Because elf doesn't just believe in Santa. He knows him. Elf knows Santa, right? This is not this theoretical Santa's out there. Let's try to just bump up the Clausometer a little bit. Elf knows him. And this is what Jesus is saying. He said, well, I don't want you to just believe that I'm there. I don't want you to just believe that I'm real. I don't want you to just go, yeah, yeah, I believe you live. I believe you died. I believe you rose. Blah, blah, blah. Boring. What's for lunch? Jesus is going, I want you to know him. Let me ask you today, do you know him? Jesus is giving you eternal life. He's saying, hey, hey, come out from under that table. Come over here. Pull up a chair. Sit with me. Enjoy me. Know me. And here's what you've got to know today. He's not looking for your perfection. He's not even looking for your effort. He's not looking for your improvement. That here you are nine days into the new year and you're still sticking with it. He's not looking for your performance. He's looking for you. He wants you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. You and I, we, his bride. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus calls us. And man, there's sometimes I just feel like, man, we're a pretty ugly bride. But not to Jesus. It says in Hebrews 12 that it was for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy? The joy was us. The joy was making all things new where he'd enjoy heaven and earth again with his pride. This is the glory of Jesus. That he can make opponents into friends. He can make sinners into saints. He can make enemies into followers. Do you know him? Jesus is glorious today. We're going to sing some more songs in a moment. I'm sure we'll break bread and we'll drink from the cup. And we're going to do that as a a declaration that he loves us and that he knows us and that he's for us. So let me pray and then... uh, I don't know if we're in another moment of silence, but they'll figure out what to do after that. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of Jesus. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you've made yourself known to us. Thank you that you are the son of God, the suffering servant, the king of kings the life giver. God, thank you that you are the one who invites us to know you. And so God, we want to know you. God, for those who uh, don't yet trust you, don't yet know you, God, I pray that they would see the glory of Jesus today and see that everything that he did in his life that we've talked about is what he wants to do for us. That he wants to feed us and he wants to heal us and he wants to raise us and he wants to turn water into wine at a wedding just to make the party better. Because he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so God, forgive us for the ways that we don't trust that. Forgive us the ways that we seek to find life elsewhere. We dig these empty holes, but God, you still come for us in your grace. And we thank you for that. And we pray now that we would enjoy knowing you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.